walking towards the ring, looking out, looking out, coming through the tunnel, looking out, seeing the ring at a distance like a halo glowing. Like there, <laughs> there it is. It's gonna happen. There's no turning back now. <laughs> That voice you just heard belongs to James Buster Douglas, the man who shocked the world on February 11, 1990, when he knocked out an undefeated Mike Tyson in spite of improbable odds and personal tragedy. Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Block's Corner. Until now, Douglas has largely been defined and celebrated by that singular moment. But on Tuesday, December 11th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, ESPN Films will debut a 30 for 30 documentary about his life, all of which leads up to that fateful fight in Tokyo. And be sure to stay tuned after my conversation with the former heavyweight champ, because ESPN's co-directors Jeremy Schapp and Ben Hauser join me to talk about their process and passion for telling this story. And now, here's James Buster Douglas. Before we get into it and we talk about what we're going to talk about, should I call you James Buster Champ? What do you like to be called? James. All right, James. So let's just dive right in. I mean, when you think about 28 years having passed since you knocked out what was a seemingly invincible Mike Tyson, what are your thoughts that run through your head? Well, just all the hard work and dedication it took to make that happen. And... uh you know, really, it was it was a good time because uh, you know I felt confident and uh, I just couldn't wait for the event to happen. When you play back all ten rounds of that fight in your head, what's your most vivid memory? Walking towards the ring, looking out, looking out, coming through the tunnel, looking out, seeing the ring at a distance like a halo glowing. It's like there, <laughs> there it is. It's gonna happen. There's no turning back now. <laughs> What's that feeling like? I mean, there and anywhere else that you've fought. It's a great feeling. It's like, yeah, it's getting ready to happen. And, you know, you do a body check and everything that you say <laughs> you've been doing. There's no denying it now because it's getting ready to show. I mean, that's really a feeling like no other. Yeah, it was, it was a great rush. I remember you landed some of the absolute most ferocious and heavy punches in that ninth round. I think it's probably one of the best rounds of boxing I've ever seen. Was that one of the best rounds of boxing that you've ever put together? It was one of them, you know, but I thought I'd do this a few other times before, you know, so. Yeah. It, it raised up there for sure. Have you and Tyson ever discussed the fight or and have you had any interaction with him since then? Yeah, I've had a little interaction with him. We never discussed the fight, though. Just asking how you know, how things been going, you know, and stuff like that. General conversation. All right. That's good. All right. Well, I want to dive into the narrative about this documentary because what I really enjoyed about it, I think the most, was the dynamic that you had with your mom and dad, which... Ben and Jeremy did a great job bringing to light. They were obviously both huge driving forces in your life and in two very different ways. How do you, how, how did those respective relationships help shape you? It was great because I had the privilege of having everything between the two, I felt. You know, it was like the, the, the knowledge that they, they uh, 
caring and loving and uh, endearment for my mom and the uh, shrewdness, the mental mentality of my father of standing strong and being a man, you know, and then the mixture between the two of them as well. So it was a great, great, great having them both there, helping me along my way as becoming a, a grown man. Yeah, you really did have have that balance there. Did you box? You you got into boxing pretty much because of your father, and you looked up yeah. to him as a boxer. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah, he was a professional national golden glove and a professional prize fighter, and that's what I was introduced to at birth. So it was something that I definitely wanted to try. Seeing my dad do it, so there it is. <laughs> there it is. So that must have been a really gratifying moment for you in the ring because you becoming a world champion. And I remember you called out your father in the post-fight interview. So things kind of really came full circle for you then, right? Yes, it did. You know, because I know the back from the day when he was fighting, it was a broadcast, being broadcast on some radio, on the radio, and I was listening to it. And, you know, and then being able to take it even one step further was just an ultimate joy. And it felt like, you know, it was like I, he handed the ball off to me and I finished it, you know, scored. You know, and it was for both of us, for the family. That's a really cool analogy, him handing the ball off to you. I definitely like that. Now, the documentary does go into some, uh, it does cover the fact that you did have a little bit of an off and on relationship with him as far as him being in the corner. Do you think that the, the knockout? No, and- there wasn't, no, wasn't no problem with he and I. It was just, you know, a problem with everybody being around him. You ah. know, they, couldn't handle, they couldn't handle his presence. He had a very strong presence. And they were intimidated by it, so, you know, they were ready to walk away, you know, and and it was like, because they couldn't handle his intensity. Oh. You know, he was a very intense man. It wasn't no damn, no, just, they couldn't handle it. No, I get they, that. They weren't, they didn't, they didn't, they couldn't handle his presence, you know, it was just too much for him. Yeah, so he really was in your corner, whether he was there or not in that Tyson fight, right? I talked to him every day when I was in Japan. He was the one who told you to let your hands go. Exactly. I think that's... His presence was there throughout, always. That's really special. Were you prepared for what Jeremy and Ben were able to bring out in this documentary? When you agreed to come on on this project and tell your life story, were you prepared for what ended up being produced? Well, I haven't seen it. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I haven't seen it. Oh, so, so I mean, really listening to you is like, okay, so it must be doing, must be coming out pretty good because you're really impressed with it. I was so really I, impressed I, with it. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that you hadn't seen it. Oh, that's gonna make it even more special when it debuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I haven't even seen it yet. I just, you know, trusted them to bring like the real situation. You know. Yeah, they um, they they really did. You know, with a combination of. You know, some great video archives, some great photographs, and I know that, yeah, some, some people in, in your in your life were also interviewed, and it really puts everything into context. And you get to know who James Buster Douglas is, because Tyson was just so huge at the time when you beat him that it it, um, it really didn't get its due, and it, and it now is. So that must feel good. Yes. Hey, where did the nickname Buster come from? From my uh, mother's uh, mom, my grandmother, first first grandchild. See, it started out butter. Oh yeah, yeah, it started out butter, but I was lighter in the beginning. <laughs> and then as I got 
got older and got darker, then it became Buster. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, first grandchild, you know, got to do whatever, to whomever, whatever. (laughs) So... Yeah, I was the man. Being a great, being a grandchild, and it, it definitely has its perks, right? You can do no wrong. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's that's the that's the beauty of that. Well, I mean, so who do you hope people think that you are um, after after they see this and they get to really understand how you came up? How do you want people to see you? Well, you know, that's an uh, upright individual, stand up, you know, believes in you know, family, and uh, the genuine person, you know, just, you know, you got a friend. Yeah. Friend, brother, you know, just that works. Do you, when, people, when people see you now and over the years, how do you think they view you? Do they think they view you as, that's the guy, that's the guy that knocked out Tyson? Do you think, do you like being defined it, it, that way it, if they do see you that way? Yeah, that's fine, you know, because it was a hell of an accomplishment. No one's seen it coming, you know. Wasn't like it was always preordained, you know. So, you know, for somebody like myself to decide to go after a major accomplishment as a man heavyweight champion, starting at the ten at the young age, ten year old, and uh, being very competitive in boxing from ten to fifteen, and then coming back at twenty one uh, as turning pro and, and uh, launching a pro career and accomplishing a major uh, feat. As become a heavyweight champion, and then not only that, being beating a guy that no one foreseen to be beatable. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So between 15 and 21 in that gap, I know you always prided yourself on being an athlete above being a boxer. You really, I think you really, you like that. I read that somewhere. Maybe uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you try other sports? Was basketball one of the other sports that, that you tried yeah, during basketball that? Was like, basketball outside of boxing was, became the main sport. I was really in golf or basketball. I, mean, I went to a great basketball high school that were you know, known for you know uh, winning state championships and city league championships, districts, regional. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be team my junior year, that was like number two in the country uh, in high school. Whoa. Um, and uh, we were like 26 and 0, won a state title. Wow. And very accomplished basketball program at Lynn McKinley High School in Columbus, Ohio. And, uh, you know, it was a great honor to be on that team. We had some great athletes, some great individuals. So, you know, I've always been associated with winners. You know, you just say, <laughs> I look back and I say that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the truth because even the little league football, we were champions in football and, uh, you know, like, of course, basketball, but as well as boxing. So I've always been associated with champions and championship caliber individuals. That's incredibly special. Yeah, from from the little age all the way up at every level, you've really been a champion. And I apologize for bouncing around for different subjects, but there's so much uh, that's that's of interest here. So your your mom, she suffered that sudden stroke 23 days before you entered the ring, the biggest fight of your life. How where do you get the inner strength to compartmentalize that absolute tragedy to fight one of the most violent, undefeated at the time, heavyweight champions? Well, because of my mom, you know, my yeah. dad, but most like, most definitely because she was the one that instilled, you know, the, the belief 
that I can do whatever, and I'm strong. I'm a strong individual, and I come from great parents, you know, and it was just instilled in me. And then once talking to her, like as always, it made things a lot clearer. You know, this was before her passing. She came over to the house, and I was at home at my home and uh, by myself, just relaxing. And she came to check on me to see how I was doing because at the time, really, my wife was split. You know, we were going through our little thing, and she was making sure that I was in the right frame of mind. And, um, you know, it was just, that's how she was, that's how she was, looking after me and my brother, you know, just always there for us, you know. You know, we never, and maybe a lot of times didn't indulge what we were truly actually feeling. Somehow, some way, she would come and bring it to our attention, like she was aware of something wasn't right. But once we talked about it, she felt confident and in, in that I was focused and ready for that fight. And like she told all her friends before she passed that, I was going to win. <laughs> but moms never stop being moms, right? To your point, like you that's just right. like you just that's said. Right. That's, uh, yeah, you can tell that you could feel her with you that night. It really seemed that that's way. Right. Yeah, maybe that had something to do with the halo around the ring as you were entering the dome, like you said. That's um just really special. And I think that does, what do you think about that? Athletes in, in all sports that come from whatever background they come from, but they come from a place where they have supportive parents growing up and parents that keep them accountable and things like that. Do you, do you think that athletes that benefit from that have an extra most gear maybe? Most definitely. Cause there's an extra it's an extra incentive, you know, to where, you know, you feel like, you know, you can do anything, you know, accomplish anything because you have the support of uh, loved ones behind you and uh, it just makes it all the better. It makes, it, makes the tough times not as tough, you know, and the hard times not as hard. So it's just a, a great feeling to have someone to reflect on and bounce things off of. Yeah. You know, just education, you know, that's the key. Absolutely. Being able to open up, help you move on. And I know that you haven't seen the film, but you obviously took part in the film. So when you returned to the Tokyo Dome all those years later, can you even put into words just what went through your head? All the, You must have had a, a, a bunch of different you thoughts. Know, I'll tell you what, we, we were going in the locker room, we were in the locker room, and then we walked down the hallway to enter the Tokyo Dome, and it felt, you know, I'll tell you, it was like uh, <laughs> a reincarnation, you know, it was like, wow, you know, you kind of visualized you know, the steps, the two, two, three steps walking into the dome, ah. coming out of the locker room, man. It was like, wow, you know, it felt real. You know, it was just a great feeling. <laughs> you know, it was a little charge, like, whoa, what? Oh, wow, this is the place. Start shadow boxing and you don't even feel it, right? <laughs> right, right. Start getting warmed up. The juices start flowing. That's incredible. Why was the fight in Tokyo? Where what? I heard, yeah, how did that become called, the destination? Because none of the uh, local uh, venues in the United States wasn't willing to buy it because they didn't think they could sell it and they didn't think it was going to last long. So yeah, so by the time I got my opportunity, he was really on the road, Tyson. You know, he was really just rolling them guys over. So by the time I got my shot, it was, you know. Always, I would say, if you weren't, you weren't decapitating people, you had no chance against this man, you know? That's what they were saying. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah. so by that by that time, it was like, no, everybody passed on it, so that's I mean, why we ended up in Japan. Yeah, but who had the last laugh? You had the last laugh, so, I mean... You bet you. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, after that Tony Tucker fight, you went on, what, a six-fight uh, six win streak right before you got the right. Tyson fight? Best shape of your life. What did it feel What did it feel like when you connected in that 10th round with that combination? That was just a vicious, vicious connection on his head. But you know what, though? It wasn't, it wasn't just the 10th round. It was all of them shit because I was cracking from a jump street. You won every you round know? except for, you know, and maybe not the 8th, but you controlled that whole fight. Right. Right, so you know when I was hitting with the tent was what I was hitting with from the very onset. <laughs> it just took a while to start getting to start, you know, making it happen. Started to see results. I said. And when he when he uh, got that uppercut in on you in the eighth, what did that feel like? Were, was you more were you more upset that you lost focus, or what was that feeling like? Yeah, that's what it was. I was more like, man, I took that second in the middle of a world fight, world championship fight. To have a moment to reflect, and it was like, you know, I reflected all right. He caught me with that shot that quick. That's how quickly it can happen. Things can change that quickly. Was that um, power-wise, where did that rank as far as shots that you've taken in your career? It was up there, but it wasn't like the best or the hardest. But it was was a shot. It got the job done. It dropped me. Are you tired of people asking about the slow count and the quick count? I mean, that's just boxing. Am Am I right? Exactly. That's just boxing. Yeah. Um, That's just the way it goes sometimes. I mean, yeah. you still uh, you still engaged in, in watching fights? Do you like certain fighters? Oh, yeah. I, watched, I was at the fight last weekend with Wilder and Fury. Oh, you saw the Deontay Wilder-Tyson Fury fight? Yeah, I went up there. I went down there. What did you think of that? Because I thought Tyson Fury just put on an absolute show as far as boxing ability. Tyson, Tyson, Tyson came to fight. Fury, man, he was—he did it, man. He, he did a great job, man. He gave it all he had, you know. It was just like I said earlier, that moment that was starting in the, in the, in the last two rounds where he started messing around, you know, stop fighting. <laughs> and while got right on him, man, like, oh, okay, pop, pop, pop. And that was it. He took it in at the, at the wrong time in the 12th. <laughs> yeah, wow. I was like, man, really? But to get up from that was pretty impressive as well. I mean, it looked like he was laid yeah, out. I thought he was down too. I thought he was down for the count, but all of a sudden he popped up. Yeah, that that left hand by Wilder to finish him off in the twelfth was something else. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, Wilder's a big puncher, man. Don't be messing around with them punches. He was he was loading up and all night, and it was just a matter of time. I was that must have been an incredible atmosphere to be in. Charge. Oh God, yeah. I think there will be a second fight, and I don't know how that's going to play out, but I'm sure it'll be a great atmosphere again. Yeah, Wilder probably knocked him out. Early. I think Wilder knocked him out sooner. Yeah, I I was thinking about that, and maybe it's because Fury. It looked as if he boxed as well as he could possibly box, and then uh, as far as Wilder goes, you, you think, well, you know, he knocked him down twice, but that wasn't the best Wilder could be. So. If Wilder can be better and Fury can't maybe be any better than he was, you probably have to give the nod to Wilder in the second fight, I would think. Right. Very interesting still. That's for sure. Oh, definitely. And from what I hear, you're doing a little training yourself. Back in the gym where you started in Columbus, Ohio, is that correct? Yeah, back in the same, uh, yeah, uh, not the actual gym, but the same program I came up under. How cool is that? Everything comes full circle for you. Yeah, it's awesome, right? That's awesome, man. That's pretty I'm cool. I'm having a ball, too. I look forward to working with the little babies, man. It's, not, it's a great, great uh, opportunity, and uh, we all have a good time in there. That's You yeah. know, it's like talking about flashbacks and having every day. Yeah, do you? <laughs> 
That's amazing. What age uh, range are you working with? You said little ones, right? Right. Well, you know, really about 10 to 10 to young adults, you know, they come in and work out. And then we go to different little uh, events and we have a show. Actually, we hosted a show back in uh, October, was, I believe, at our gym. It was a great show. Nice. At WBC, at four WBC championship belts that we gave away to the most outstanding fighter, up and coming fighter. We got different little brackets that we gave them away to. Oh, it that's... was nice. The kids really enjoyed it. They were really shocked to see those nice belts. That's really nice. Yeah, the kids will remember that forever. And and who knows if you know if they get started, that could be one of their one of their first great memories. I mean, you started around that age, like you said, age ten. That's right. And I always look at the awards when we went to the different events. I always checked out what kind of awards they had. How big were the trophies? Yeah, I was inspiration, you know. Exactly. Before, right before the money and the handlers and the TV and everything else, we all did it for the trophies. That's what we wanted. So that's, that's right. The trophies, right? It's a nice, humble reminder, and it's a really cool thing you're doing. And you know what? In five to ten years, who knows? One of these kids could be standing in the ring with the TV cameras on them and thanking you. So you never know. That's how it works. <laughs> Well, it's been long past due that your story gets out there. I think Tuesday, December 11th, when ESPN runs this special, this documentary, I think it's really going to go over well and and people are going to finally get to know James Buster Douglas. So I really, really do appreciate the few minutes you gave me here. And thanks for coming on with me. Appreciate you having me, man. And uh, all the best. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to those firsthand accounts and stories as much as I did. And now to give you some behind-the-scenes insights are the two Emmy Award-winning directors responsible for the film. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Schapp and Ben Hauser. How did you guys arrive at the idea to tell James Buster Douglas's story? I mean, which has really largely gone untold until now. Well, so, you know, I, I covered boxing for a long time, uh, pre-STN. I haven't really been in the boxing game for a while, though, and I've always been around the sport growing up around it and um for me it was just one of those moments i was in college when it happened it just always stuck with me it's one of like i i can't with the possible exception of the miracle on ice which i didn't get to see live or even live on tv since it was on tape play this right it's like the most thrilling thing you know i can remember ever seeing in sports and um and so that was always in the back of my mind and i did stories about Buster on the 20th anniversary and on the 25th anniversary and um, the last several years the 60 team was talking about maybe you know there's something to do and Ben and I talked about it wouldn't it be great to do a full-scale treatment of of the Buster story because we're, we're both passionate about it we both recognized it as something that really was unmined and uh, and then you know um, I was having a conversation with Libby Geist, who runs 30 for 30, among other things, and uh, I told her why I think it's a great story and why it works for 30 for 30 and how it would be a great partnership, you know, for, you know, uh, E60, you know, some E60 people, me and Ben, to to work on a 30 for 30. Um, certainly, you know, the price is right. You know, we've, for, we've foregone our director's fees. Um, and just, just because we're so passionate about the project and, yeah. and about this story. And, and I think part of it is, you know, we actually feel deeply that, you know, Buster is underappreciated and his achievement is misunderstood. And, um, 
it's not just that it hasn't been told, but it's what people do know or think they know is incorrect. You know, that he was a one-hit wonder, that he was this tomato can, that he was that he got lucky, and, and you know, having watched the film, that luck had nothing to do with it. It's, a, it's, it's in, a, in a way, the exact opposite. It's a guy not getting lucky, but a guy um, finally realizing his potential. Yeah, no question. And, and I want to get into all that because the narrative that you and Ben told was, it took me by surprise, to be honest. I really thought, obviously, I knew it was going to culminate with the fight between Douglas and Tyson, but I had no idea that you were going to take it to the depths that you took it, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But just to go back, now you said you were in college, Jeremy, when this happened. This was such a where were you moment in sports history. I mean, Ben, where were you? And can you sort of, both of you, can you contextualize how big this was for people that weren't around when it was happening? I mean, this was beyond monumental to see Mike Tyson beat, let alone knocked out. I think we both have uh, interesting takes on this because it probably follows uh, the narrative of America and how they realized what happened in this fight. Um, Jeremy will tell you his in a second. I was 14 years old and asleep. Not only did I not have HBO, which I'm not sure how many people did in 1990, um, but I was I was young and I, I assumed Tyson was going to win. I had followed much of his career and watched the Spinks fight, and uh, I think I even watched the Carl the Truth Williams fight. Buster Douglas right. was a foregone conclusion by most people. So I I. As much of a sports fan as I was, I did not watch it. I found out the next morning I was in church and somebody had told me, hey, did you hear about Tyson? And I said, when did he win? (laughs) Knock him out. And they said, no, he lost. And I said, what? And then I said, I don't believe you. Why are you lying to me in church? And then I went home and turned on ESPN (laughs) and I I saw obviously what happened. So Jeremy's is much different, but I think a lot of America... I was not in church. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) A lot of America, but... yeah, I mean, they, we did, that, they didn't know. This fight was in Tokyo, Japan, and no, everyone thought it was it was just another tune-up fight for the Holyfield fight that was coming in June. So That's that a good point. <clears throat> that's a that's a great point, right? Between the time difference and the fact that he was just supposed to be a tomato can, like you said, I, it just adds to the whole mystique of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a huge story on Sunday morning. I mean, huge story Sunday morning. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I found out Saturday night because I was... <sighs> I was in college and I was in Hanover and I think I, I, I'd been covering that night, uh, a Cornell Dartmouth hockey game. Really? Uh, and, and I had a friend who was at Dartmouth. We went to a party together and I was looking around this fraternity house. I have no idea which one, you know, Hey, does anybody here have HBO? And I was trying to find somewhere where I could watch the fight. Not because I was, you know, that passionate about, but I was uh, more passionate the most about, you know, boxing and all that. So I wanted to see the fight. Mm-hmm. And in those days, in 1990, it wasn't easy finding even regular HBO. And That's uh, right. Couldn't find anybody. Nobody had it at the fraternity house. I'm not sure that anybody in the entire city of Hanover, New Hampshire, had, had HBO at that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I kind of forgot about it. At some point, a guy who I had asked earlier in the night, like, if they had HBO came up to me and say, hey, did you hear what happened? I don't know how, I, I don't remember how he knew, uh, but it had to be, I guess, around midnight. And of course, I was stunned. And then my mother, <laughs> you know, I'm sure I didn't have HBO back in college where I was going. <laughs> uh, she had taped the fight and sent it to me on a VHS. Oh, that's amazing. Watching it a few days later was just <laughs> like thrilling. You know, it's one of those things, even though you know the outcome, 
when it, when it happens, you just I, I've watched. Still can't believe. I haven't watched the fourth segment as much as uh, Ben has because he's been in the edit room every day. But I probably watched it twenty times just because I just love watching that fight. It's an amazing fight, you know. And and that's another thing about this story that I think um, is great for Ben and me because you know we we work in the world of E sixty and mm-hmm. and um, you know we've gotten out of the world of kind of like sports events and how much. You know, and that's why you get into this because of sports fans, and we love what we're doing. Storytelling is the greatest thing to be able to do, and and I think I speak for Ben when we say we have. You know, oh, I totally agree. Oh, uh, yeah, we but, love it. But but this story is is to a large extent about the actual sports event. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 you sometimes you get you get caught up in story, you know, in stories and issues and profiles and all that and, and this is that of course but it's also about just an incredible stunning moment on the field uh which is which is fun too yeah the way it's all wrapped up in it in itself and i agree storytelling especially in the form that you and ben do it is tremendous and the way it just unfolded and it's like you said you were watching it 20 times after i still watch it on youtube and just the counter punching and and the balance and the poetry and the physical and the force, every it has virtually everything. And, and that's it is like a movie. It's like great theater. In in the actual fight, there is great theater. I mean, when Buster goes down, I think that's something people will not expect if they don't know the story. When they watch the documentary and that happens, I think your heart sinks to your stomach and you're like, oh no, what just happened? Right. Right. And even I mean, if you know that's, that's like a, yeah, because yeah. you get caught up moment. Right, that eighth round, he had been really controlling Tyson, and then it's like when he goes down, it's almost like people could say, oh, there he is, that's what we finally expected. And then, for me, I don't know how you guys felt, but that ninth round, when he came out, I thought that was one of the best rounds of boxing I've ever seen. That may be speaking to my age, but I don't know how you guys felt. That round before he ended up knocking out Tyson in the tenth, I mean, the ferocity was just mind-blowing, I thought. It's unbelievable the the action, you know. I mean, we don't get a lot of that kind of action in heavyweight fights. I mean, look, Saturday night, you know, that was a more compelling fight than people expected it to be. Fury and Wilder, and Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder. I mean, there were more punches thrown in that ninth round than in the twelve rounds of Fury and Wilder. I mean, it's not even close. Yeah, and and they're trading blows. It it just. It, it boggles the mind, and the call is great. I mean, I think Sheridan on the call, you know, when he says, and it's perfect, you know, he's like, we, you know, this is the round where we thought Buster Douglas would pack it in after getting knocked down, but instead here he is showing the heart. Who would have, who would have, what does he say? Who could have thought? Who would have thought? Yeah, would have thought. Yeah, would have thought. yeah it, exactly. I agree with you, and I, I think the ninth round, one other thing to, to consider, I think, when people watch this is, you know, there's a lot of reports that have come out of Tyson not being in shape, Tyson not training, and, and and it's hard to know what the truth is in all of that. I'm sure that some of that is true. But Mike Tyson lasted 10 rounds, and at the beginning of all of those rounds, even after the eighth-round knockdown in the ninth, he comes out and throws a vicious left hook. And even after he is pummeled in the ninth, he comes out in the tenth. And if you if you watch the first punch Tyson throws, he throws a right hand that knocked out every man before him. And Buster somehow absorbs those punches and continues to fight. It's really remarkable. Yeah, um, I mean, that's and it is somewhat of the, the, yeah. 
you know, and, and Tyson, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about <laughs> Tyson in shape, Tyson not showing up. Look, you know, nobody's making excuses for Buster Douglas. No. If, if he loses that fight, right? But no question. But if we're to make excuses for Mike, we're always looking for ways as humans to justify things that we see that seem impossible. And the fact is, you know, Mike Tyson's 23 years old. He's in great fighting trim. He obviously, you know, had stamina because he lasted so long while he was getting his butt kicked. <laughs> did, he, did he approach this fight, uh, you know, the way that he should have? Clearly, the outcome tells us uh, to some degree that he didn't, but that's a champion's responsibility. And as Al Bernstein says, he's like, he, he didn't think of Buster Douglas like he thought of him exactly the way he thought of every other opponent. I'm going to kill him. You know, it's not like he thought Michael Spinks is this incredible opponent. Yeah, it wasn't so right. Exactly, it wasn't so much that he was taking for granted Buster Douglas. The guy was immortal. He knew it, and he he showed it in thirty seven fights leading up to that point. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, let's let's dive in. So, I want to circle back uh, as much as I enjoyed that because I could talk about this all day. The narrative that you guys told about Buster's relationship with his father and his mother. Like I said, I wasn't necessarily expecting it, but I was very glad that you decided to tell it that way. Did you? Was that your intention all along, or did that come about through just the research into the project? So, you know, it's funny. So I mentioned that I did the 20th and the 25th, and those, those were sports center pieces. Right. And I always wanted, to me, the, the father-son dynamic. Of course, the death of Buster's mom is pivotal, but also the father-son dynamic. And nobody even knows that his father wasn't, he wasn't just a fighter. He was a hell of a fighter. Yeah, I had no idea. His persona was the exact opposite of Buster. You know, a guy who'll fight anybody, drop of a dime, always in shape, all that. And to me, that has always been the heart of the story. And we never really had the time to do it justice previously. And I don't think anybody has. So from the beginning, Ben and I sat down. We sat down with our editor, producer, Mike Chalice, who was also instrumental in this project. And we said, you know, all right, this is what this story is about. It is about a father and a son and that dynamic and that tension. Now, the fight is the climax. That's, that's what we're getting to. But the heart of this story is about his love for his mother and her death and his tensions with his father. That's the story. You know, I would agree. Right. And I would say the easiest way to, to actually realize this story is to see the Larry Merchant interview in the ring only a minute or, or 30 seconds, 45 seconds after Buster knocks out Mike Tyson. Yeah, that, that was incredible. By Merchant, he immediately breaks down. Yeah, he cries. He says, I won because of my mom. And with, within another 30 seconds, he says, I won this for you, Dad, who was not at the fight in Japan. He was back in Columbus, and he was speaking directly to his father. And those were really the two things that propelled him. To, to beat Mike Tyson. I mean, it was, it was clear to see what the narrative was. And I think, and you said this early on, it really hadn't been told. It hadn't been mined. Everyone's told this story from Mike Tyson's perspective. We felt there was a whole angle that hadn't been out there before. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did. And watching that interview after the fight, when it all poured out of him, and he was paying homage to his mother, who had just passed, what, 20 or so days before, which is... Is mind-boggling to me, but also he didn't say he loved his father, right? He he just said this one was f- for you, I think. But that was. He says, I love you too. I think so. Okay. But I'm not sure. I think he says, "Dad, I love you," and this one's for you. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I have to. I, I think you're right, Jeremy. Yeah, it's um, 
it was just it was just incredible because the relationship it was almost as if he fought uh, Buster fought so hard to please his father, but at the same time, you know, he was nothing like him, and they had this contentious relationship, which I thought you punctuated so well by the Tony Tucker fight. I think one of the last times that that uh, Bill Douglas was in Buster's corner, I may be wrong about that, but and he showed up at the fight wearing a shirt, basically promoting himself, which just punctuated your your point so well. I mean, we, you know, people had talked about that with us and, and, you know, you know, and Ben's looking at every frame of video, although I, I guess it's not frames anymore. And, and <laughs> there it, you know, there it is wearing the shirt. I mean, uh, it does tell you a lot, that story. It, it does. And by the way, the archive of Buster Douglas is not very deep. I mean, he was not covered extensively in his career. So one thing we were able to at least uncover is some of these fights that were, they were largely unseen. Uh, there was a lot of photographs. There's a great archival story about how Jeremy, through a friend of his, found um, a photographer from Columbus who's actually a concert pianist who was featured on 60 Minutes, but happened to take all these photos of Buster um, from the time he was 21 and started his pro career with his father as a trainer. Oh, how cool is that? Stuff on Buster's stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's just, Mike Tyson was covered. Buster Douglas yeah. largely wasn't. Um, even on the Tucker fight, like that was was not the easiest um, find uh, of finding things surrounding that fight because in 1987 it was all about Mike Tyson. It really wasn't about Buster Douglas. It it really was, and it's just <clears throat> it's incredible because Buster Douglas goes down as one of the greatest protagonists in sports history, and here we are talking about how much of a struggle it was to sort of find content and images and anything really around him. Which also reminds me of there was. It was early in the film, I believe, where uh, a very young Al Bernstein was interviewing a young Buster Douglas, and he had his family right by his side in the ring, and you could really see just the, I, I don't know, the the, the purity um, or the innocence of Buster. It just, he, he seemed so vulnerable, and so, I, I don't know what the right word is, but that, that really, uh, that, that spoke to me. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something about that moment. It's great. And again, it's the only video um, that we know exists, period, of Buster's mom. And uh, and Ben found that, and and Ben sent it to Buster and his brother Bill, and they had not, right, Ben? They had not seen or heard their mother, you know. Oh, wow. Way. Yes, they didn't even know. Buster did not remember being interviewed from back in, that was 1983. <laughs> and uh, they both wrote me back within a minute and said, wow, they've never seen that. And they got kind of emotional. I mean, for them, you know. She seemed so proud in that story, moment. I know She seemed so proud. And I know Buster, you know, I think for him, he feels like a lot of this hasn't been told as well. He really feels the respect and homage, not only for his father and for what he um, attained in his own boxing career, and how he helped them. And obviously they had tension at times, but you know, this, this story really does kind of go back and, and, and cover both of these people. Um, and that uncovering that interview and, and Al did such a great job. It was really uh, a gold mine. When I saw it, I was like, Oh my gosh, there's, there's Lula Pearl. <laughs> I've never heard her speak before. And then sure enough, there's his dad standing there right there as well. Yeah, that, that's true. She always, the way she was depicted by you guys, she always seemed like 
the silent one, but really the the powerful one in the family. And when she actually spoke in that moment, it just uh, it kind of blew me away, as I'm sure it did Buster and his brother. And his brother uh, and his uncle were huge parts, as well as Al, like you said, in, in the making of the film. They really helped put things together. Was this the first time that that you both were dealing with Douglas? Have you ever interviewed him before? I guess, uh, I guess Jeremy, if you're the 20th and 21st, uh, 25th, excuse me, you probably did. But uh, was this yeah. your first time working with him at length? Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, did, I did those pieces, but I think, Ben, this is the first time you were with those guys? Yeah, absolutely. It was the first time. Um... And Buster, you know, I think Buster, like like any subject of a story, you know, you got to wait to kind of trust. He knows Jeremy a little bit, but you no, know, I think he's unsure. What are these guys doing? But over time, um, we really kind of bonded, especially when we went to Japan. I think that was a great moment for him, um, and getting to go back to that place. He hadn't been there since he left in the whirlwind of, of defeating Mike Tyson in 1990. Is that right? That was the very first time back. Wow, that's uh, that must yeah, have been a heavy moment. He yeah, he seemed pretty open and yeah, cooperative was, with you guys. You find that to be the case over time? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He's been, uh, you know, even, uh, for instance, him going to the cemetery, he goes occasionally. Not often, though, to go see. Not only where his mother is buried, his father passed away in, I think, 99 or 2000. Um, forgive me for not knowing the exact date. It was after the Tyson fight, obviously. Sure. And then his, he has two brothers that have passed away. Anyways, they're all buried in the cemetery. So he goes very, I'd say very rarely, but... Um, you know, I wanted to kind of capture him seeing his mother, and, and he decided to do that with us. Um, uh-huh. And I know he hasn't really done that in the past. So, and he got a little emotional being there. Uh, I think you know he said to me because we drove you know out of the cemetery, and uh, for him it was. He said, "Man, I I hadn't really been there in a while, and that's that's hard to stand there and see where your mother and father, um, and their final resting place." But he was he was open with us. He's really been great. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing to do. Nonetheless, you know, having cameras on you. How much so how much time did you spend with him and, you know, and his family and and everyone else during this uh during the filming? What was it? I guess yeah, we went out we went out once in May and once in June I think to Columbus. Ben went with so we spent time in May and June in Columbus. And then Ben went back out, went to Japan with him in August. Um, and he went back in, in Columbus in August too, Jeremy. We were there for that's right, uh, yeah, a week. And then before we went to Vegas with Jimmy Vaccaro and all that, yeah. Who also played a great role in in the film, talking about the bets laid. I, I forget, I forget the exact amount, but he said some some guy specifically had. Pl- place hundreds of thousands just to win three or four thousand or something oh, yeah. like that i mean it's, just uh it's crazy it's it, crazy when you think about what people were doing it, it actually doesn't make rational sense but <laughs> he actually explained this this isn't in the documentary but he gave us he gave us this line which i think is very funny uh he says most of these gamblers these betters looked at this situation as like a stick up i'm going to give you my money <laughs> and you're going to give me my money back in about two or three minutes and you're going to give me a few more thousand when I, when I do. And that's what people thought. They thought this was this was literally, yeah, there was no way they were going to lose. Everybody so was poking I fun. Garage, I think we, everyone. And at the end, I, I, you know, I think we put this at the end of the documentary in the credits. The Mirage Casino ended up making about $450,000 because James Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson. That's a lot of money. They took like $10 million in, 
in action and bets on the fight, but because Buster won and so much money was bet on Tyson, the casino made out. That's incredible. That's just incredible. And you guys are going to air the entire fight after the documentary. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. That's a really cool touch. Does it make it any easier or harder when you're dealing with a subject who's as known or already known as a Buster Douglas? You know, I think it depends. Um, You know, I think one of the strengths of this story is, as we've discussed, the fact that people don't know much. And and, and Ben and I keep saying this, it's become kind of our mantra on this, is that this story um, is so rich and can be so powerful because people know just the slightest amount about it. They know that first sentence, they know the first line, and they don't know the second story. I mean, the hard part is when you're dealing with people like Mike Tyson, who I've interviewed a hundred times. Now, he's a great interview, but every time you go there, you're like, well, what the hell haven't we covered? You know? Right. Um, for people who are big, big stars, there's, there's just, I think there's, a, you know, fatigue at a certain point. Um, and stories about people, you know, you've never heard of, um, period. And, and and that's a different kind of thing. But when you're talking about somebody, you know, who actually his name is known, if not his story, uh, I think that's that's really kind of the sweet spot. Um, people say, oh, yeah, I remember I remember what he did, but I didn't know this. I didn't know that. I had no idea that uh, he had to overcome that, that there were all of these conflicts in his life, all these tensions. And um you know, I think I think with Buster too. I think you know he's expressed some frustration, not so much with us, but this time around. But over the years, with the fact that people don't don't celebrate this this victory uh, for what it was, one of the greatest upsets in the history of sports. Hmm. And so, you know, I think there's some eagerness on his part to uh, to rectify that. Um, you know, it's just it's always weird to me, and I, I, I've talked about this. You know, it's like there's something about boxing where people don't want to give boxers credit the way they do other athletes, you know? Um, what do you mean by that? You know, it's like, if you're, what I mean is, if you're like the 20th best pitcher in Major League Baseball, you're a star, and you get you get respect, and you make tens of millions of dollars. If you're the third best heavyweight in the world in 1987, <laughs> but you're not the first, the best, you're a bum. You know, that's that's always been like, you know, oh, yeah, he's a stiff, you know, and and I think what boxing demands uh, is, uh, you know, kind of discipline and commitment that's greater than anything else in sports. I mean, here's Buster Douglas, right? We're talking about he's got this reputation for underachieving and people think of him, some people as a quitter, right, after after the Tucker fight. And, and here's a guy, you know what? Where he getting into the ring with a guy like Tony Tucker to begin with, you know, takes courage, takes commitment, takes heart. You know, you can't be um, a, a fighter at that level without some of that. But but people want to diminish it with boxers. It's always like not giving them credit. And uh, I don't know. It, it bugs me as a guy who's covered the sport because I think what boxers do is the hardest thing in sports. Yeah, that's that's an interesting dynamic, that Tucker fight in 1987. Right, Tony Tucker was no slouch, but in the comparison to a 20-game winner in baseball, he probably got no respect. Right, right. You know, it's just, it's a weird thing. It's always like that in boxing, you know. Um, and and I think, uh, 
Buster in particular has uh, suffered, uh, you know, that kind from that kind of perspective on it. Uh, instead of people saying, "Wow, Buster Douglas, you know, he won the heavyweight title, he fashioned the biggest upset in the history of sports, you know, he fought for the title before," that's a pretty good career. People say, "Oh yeah, but he 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 didn't get up when Holyfield hit him." I'm like, okay, you know, but you know, nobody talks about, for instance, like. I could go on and on. You know, Bob Beeman, he jumped 29 feet, two and a half inches, and Bob's a friend of mine. I celebrate that kind of... Nobody says, yeah, but he never jumped 28 feet again or 27 feet again. (laughs) Nobody says, oh, Billy Mills, you know, that was great winning the 10,000 in Tokyo in 64, but he never won another big race. It's like, why can't we just appreciate the achievement rather than uh, diminishing it, which is what I think we do with boxers more than any other athlete. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, what they do is incredible enough. And if they only do it once, and like you said, eight months later when he faced Holyfield in his only title defense and lost, why can't we just appreciate how great one moment was? Which leads me uh, to ask you, does that fight define who James Buster Douglas was as a boxer? I think it, I think it, it shows us the potential. I think it's a moment like, like a Beeman kind of where, you know, uh, somebody has all these gifts and they marshal them uh, in one particular situation, but not some random situation, uh, same for Al Order, you know, you could go on and on. But when it mattered most, at the moment at which the stakes were highest, when he was fighting for his mother's memory to honor her, to make her proud, fighting for... Um, uh, his professional reputation, fighting for uh, the idea of being able to provide for his family, so he showed up and then some, in a way that nobody thought he would show up and nobody else had ever shown up. And um, I think that's how Buster Douglas would be remembered. Uh, as Al Bernstein says at the end of our film, basically, Buster Douglas was a guy with a lot of talent, a lot of potential, and who knows if he if he had approached all of his fights the way that he approached that fight, and if he'd had that kind of, of course, he wasn't going to have the same motivation after his mother's death that uh, inspired him. Um, but it's not like he fights Mike Tyson a hundred times and he beats him once. Buster Douglas at his best against Mike Tyson his best. I think you could make the case. Uh, you know that's that's even money. That ain't forty two to one. <laughs> And, and how many people don't live up to the hype and their potential just once? There's so many of those cases. So right. it's... Um, right, exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'll i take this one night if the rest of the career was how it was or, or whatever. But final thoughts, guys. Both of you, what do you... By the way. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. billion dollars. You know, that's the biggest, that's the biggest check anyone had ever gotten in the history of sports. That's $48 million now. He got Jesus. $24 million for that Holyfield fight. And he would have gotten like $30 million if he'd won that fight and fought Tyson again. I mean, um, you know, uh, he didn't take care of the money. Um, but but that, that's, that's pretty remarkable um, what he achieved. My father always said, look, with the exception of like the Rockefellers or, you know, the Vanderbilts selling their art collection given night, the heavyweight champion – and the heavyweight contender, the guys fighting for that title, they're fighting for the biggest thing in sports with the most money. It's, they have the potential to make more money in any one-hour period than anybody else in the world. 
And, and by beating Mike Tyson, uh, Buster Douglas set himself up for that incredible, incredible payday. Oh, yeah. Um, $24 million in 1990, 1991 was astronomical. By the way, Mike Tyson made $6 million for the fight against Buster, and I think Buster made $1.3 million, if that gives you perspective. Was that the share? Is that right? Wow. I'm pretty sure yeah. that's accurate. Tyson Douglas, Mike got $6 million. Uh, Buster got 1.3. I think Tyson Holyfield, again, I, I may be wrong, but I think Tyson was expected to get around 12 million. So Buster kind of blew it out of the water um, that's, when he signed with Steve Wynn to get 24 million dollars. That's very interesting. So six million to one, and then Buster goes on for 24 million against Holyfield, and then when Tyson and Holyfield face, Tyson got less. Wow. That's interesting. Very interesting. Well, I, I really I enjoyed the film. I really enjoyed talking with both of you about the whole the genesis of everything and and all the backstories. What what are your final thoughts? What do you hope people take away from watching this? I, I hope that they learn a lot. Um, I think that in watching this, this is largely an untold story. I think we tried to uncover a lot of things you hadn't seen, even including on Tyson. You know, a lot of the archives you're going to see from Mike are rarely seen pieces of footage or, um, you know, we try, I think we showed every single Mike Tyson fight from one to 37, which, uh, is everything before Buster and then including Buster. Uh, I know one of them, we have an entire Mike Tyson fight in this documentary against Marvis Frazier. Uh, granted the fight was 30 seconds, but that entire fight's in there from Bell till, till they ended it. Um, I mean, I think there's just a lot here and, and to kind of realize who Buster Douglas was who he is today um and what his accomplishment is i think i kind of share just from spending time with him really seeing what he hopes people would learn and and see about his life and his father and his upbringing uh i think that's what we tried to do we tried to bring you that story of what i think jeremy and i consider to be the greatest upset in sports i think charlie steiner says that um towards the end of the documentary but it really is i mean I, i think it is the biggest upset in sports I'd agree with you. Two to one was just represented. So that's what I'm hoping people get. That's... Yeah. And, and 42 to one, by the way, is not even really an accurate reflection of just how steep the odds were because it was only the Mirage. Nobody else would even post odds. And, um, you know, 42 to one in a heavyweight championship fight, when you got two big guys punching each other and one punch can always make the difference. I mean that's like that's like four hundred to one, you know, if you're picking the field in a golf tournament or in a tennis. You know what I mean? It's like it's forty two to one, but it really uh, figuratively was a million to one. Yeah, I mean, what would be what would be an equivalent to today? Actually, you know, just to put it into context of how ridiculous, how incredible this was. I mean, that would have been like I, I don't know. Would that have been like the, the it, 2018 it, it, Mets winning the World Series? I don't know. Parallel. There is no, there's no analogy to the, yeah. I, I'm searching for one. There's nobody as big as Tyson. Um, there's, there's nobody uh, who has that stature in the public imagination. I don't think even close today in terms of how feared he was. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it would have been like... It would have been like Conor McGregor beating Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match. That's a good one. Sure. Except that was probably only like nine to one. (laughs) But it it really is like a guy who has never had a professional fight 
beating Floyd Mayweather. You know, uh, it's incredible. Floyd Mayweather's forty-two or whatever, and 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 Mike Ty- or and Mike Tyson was twenty-three. Um, you can't even you can't even. To me, the takeaway from this, there are a couple of things. It's it's we wanted, we really did, you know, want to uh, do justice to this story, which we've always thought is this incredibly rich, powerful story that for some reason nobody knows. And um, the other thing is, I, I you know, I think that it it, it is uh, inspirational. You know, there's telling the story, informing people, and then it's inspirational. You know, I think people will take something away from someone in that one moment for uh, one morning in Tokyo finding um, finding a way to reach deep inside himself and defying all expectations, defying personal history, and um, seizing the day and demonstrating and fully realizing his potential. And, and, you know, it's a lesson to all of us that if we, it, that if it's in there, it can be tapped. And Buster did that. That's perfect. Yeah, that's well said. And I think it's going to hit everybody very hard and people will interpret it differently and take it differently, but it'll, it'll definitely hit you hard. And, and, and to bring it all home, like you said, there's no analogy to what this was. It's it was that special. It was that magical. That inspirational. There's nothing, nothing like. It. And I thank you both for thank coming you, on man. and joining me. Thank you, Ben. Great to talk to you. My thanks to Jeremy and Ben for joining me and adding all that great context, and of course to James Buster Douglas. The documentary airs Tuesday, December 11th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on ESPN. Immediately followed by a taping of the full Tyson Douglas fight. So please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review of Block's Corner. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BenjaminBlock21. Until next time, this has been Benjamin Block. Thanks for listening.